Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Last week we went through chapter 8, and as we did so, we were reminded that our rights or liberties in Christ are not anywhere close to being what most people in our day mean when they talk about human rights or just rights. A Christian's rights or liberties do not imply freedom to do whatever you want to do. Instead, a Christian's rights or liberties mean being liberated or freed to do what you ought to do. And as Paul made clear... Love for your Christian brothers and sisters trumps even your freedoms in Christ. The Apostle Paul explained all this in the context of dealing with an issue in the Corinthian church about whether food offered to idols should be eaten by Christians. And evidently some in the church were taking issue with those who were eating food previously offered to idols. So how did Paul deal with this question? First, he established the foundational principle that that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And probably like the Corinthians, when they realized that's what Paul was saying, they were a little bit going, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it has everything to do with this issue. This gives us a strong hint that knowing the truth requires, it demands, a great amount of humility and love. And without it, knowledge can become a really ugly thing. Second, he showed that an idol is really nothing and that God, the God of the Bible, is the only God. Therefore, knowing those truths, there's nothing wrong with eating that food. The idol is offered, that it's offered to is nothing. And food cannot bring you, to, bring you close to God or keep you from your God. And third, he made clear that even though a Christian is free to eat that food, some believers may have been so engaged in that lifestyle prior to their conversion that they just could not yet eat it freely without what? without defiling their own conscience. And to them, it was taking part in a sinful lifestyle. So Paul concluded, fourthly, that every Christian should be careful not to become a stumbling block in a weaker brother's faith and walk with Christ, even if it meant not doing what you're really free to do. In other words, love for your Christian brothers and sisters trumps even your freedom in Christ. And in the last verse of chapter 8, verse 13, Paul starts making this teaching personal. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now that sounds like, yeah. I got that, but we don't get that, do we? 
Not very well. And today, as we begin chapter 9, Paul continues to deal with problems coming from the eating meat offered to idols issue. And some in the Corinthian church may have seen Paul's voluntary surrender of his liberty to eat off foods as actually undermining his apostolic authority. Do you? He could exert his authority. He leads by making people do what they're free to do. This would sound sort of like easily giving in. And man, he's indecisive. And he's not exerting strength from his authoritative position. In other words, some may have thought that he'd undermined his own authority. And therefore, his apostolic authority was limited. And some people may have seen his supporting of himself as working as a tent maker, which probably all of you realize was his other way to support himself, as being beneath a man bearing the title of apostle of Christ. We've got to remember that this eating meat offered to idols issue was just one of many problems in this church. One of many problems. And what Paul taught them about voluntarily surrendering their liberty in order to genuinely love their brothers and sisters in Christ, that was actually the solution to most of their problems. This was a church that didn't play well with others amongst their body. Paul is building up to a whole chapter on this subject, which is chapter 13. That's where he's going, and he's going to be dealing with this all the way through the book. But boy, he really gets specific in that particular chapter. So what's going on in here chapter in this chapter 9? So here, in this next chapter, to illustrate this loving your fellow believers point in a way they'll never forget is what Paul's doing. He's illustrating it by providing himself as the example. And how's he going to do that? Paul shows how he, as an apostle of Christ, was willing to forego any and all of his Christian liberties and rights. For the sake of the gospel, which is in verse 23. We're not going to get that far today, but that's where he's going with this. If believers treated each other with anything but grace and love, the gospel message would be undermined and rendered powerless in the eyes of those who needed it the most. The glory of Christ must not be diminished by his own people, in other words, especially in, in the eyes of non-believers. So Paul, Paul's defense here of his apostolic authority is really not a defense of his apostolic authority. It's really 
a way to provide the Christian church with his own personal example of how to love and serve the Lord by loving and serving one another. And as a result, we get a very up-close and personal account of his own ministry and calling. Does that make any sense? Paul's going to establish what his rights are as an apostle here in our passage today. He's going to list them and go through them by a series of really neat questions. And he's doing that to show these are what's my, what my rights are. But I am willing to give every one of these up for the sake of the gospel and you. That's why this is so powerful. It's a very interesting portion of this letter. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 9. I'm just going to go through the first half of verse 12 today. Next week, we're going to get to the meat of this. Today, it's just what his rights are. All right? What his rights are. So he starts off. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap materials, material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you were going to examine how to present an argument, this would be a real good place that you could use. Did you notice how these questions just built and built and built and built? First, he showed them what the marks of an apostleship are, and he gives four rhetorical questions. Verses 1 and 2. And these deal with his Life and being an apostle, and all of these require a yes answer. Am I not free? 
This question flows directly from the part of chapter 8 where he deals with this. Remember that since Paul had founded this church and, and so spent a lot of time with these people, they knew and had to acknowledge his freedom in eating and drinking with them. They saw him. How he was free to eat and drink, but he also knew that those that would be upset and have their consciences defiled by doing so when he was with them in their homes, he didn't. This question is important. Second, he says, am I not an apostle? Now, Paul had been criticized ever since his conversion by his opposition, especially about being an apostle. Why? Well, for lots of reasons. It was hard for some to accept a man as an apostle of Christ who had for so long viciously hunted down Christians to persecute them. But even though he was not among the 12, the original 12, and he did not witness Jesus' actual resurrection and ascension, his conversion and call to apostleship was well documented. It's in Acts chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 26, and several more places. Thirdly, he asked, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Which was one of the main criteria for an apostle that was common to every single one of them. And he did see the risen Lord, the ascended Lord on the road to Damascus. So we're going to have some fun now. I'm going to read this account from Acts. Actually, that's after the one from Corinthians itself in chapter 15. Sorry. At the end of this letter, he writes, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you and which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That's really important. Anybody try to say, no, he didn't. These people were still alive. They're witnesses to it. He does say, though, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely, aboard, uh, untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
So that's coming up at the end of this letter. In Acts 22, the first 16 verses, we have another great account. This is after he was arrested in the temple and he, get, he got to spoke to the people who were gathered. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the followers of this way, what the Christians were called. I persecuted the followers of this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear, wit bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now there's one more in Acts when he's before Agrippa that is gripping. Let you read that one on your own. The bottom line here is what? That Paul is an apostle only because Jesus himself appeared to him on his way to Damascus. Why? when he was going to hunt down and persecute Christians. Right in the middle of that task, God called him to himself, and his life changed. He had a special calling from God. Paul did not pursue this office. Fourth thing Paul says here is, are you not 
my workmanship in the Lord. Back to our text. The Corinthians knew that if it had not been for Paul coming to them, they'd still be in darkness. And as Gentile believers, they themselves were proof positive that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Now in verse 2 of chapter 9, Paul points out that if the Corinthians deny the validity of his call to apostleship, that they would be, in effect, also denying their own validity as a congregation. If others, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, he writes, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. A seal refers to a mark of authority uh, or ownership. So Paul is Christ's seal upon this church. And next, in verses 3 through 7, Paul asks six more rhetorical questions. And he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. In other words, this is to those who thought that Paul did not meet their expectations as an apostle. And he asks another series of questions. First, in verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Now, what's your first thought when you hear that? You're thinking, well, he said that in chapter 8, didn't he? Is he talking about eating food offered to idols? Some interpret it that way, but that's not what this is. This is he's not referring back to that because he's already made that point in chapter 8, especially verses 8 and 9 of chapter 8. So what is he doing? He's beginning a defense of his actions as an apostle who gave up his rights for the sake of the gospel. And in order to demonstrate what he has freely given up, the first he has to reiterate or establish, for those who are not aware of it, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what his rights as an apostle are. So read that again. What's he saying? Do we not have a right to eat and drink? So what is that? It's the right to receive provision for room and board from the church that he's serving. For the labors among them of bringing the gospel and establishing their, their church. Secondly, in verse 5, he says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Now, this is pretty interesting, isn't it? What does he mean by that? Well, sure, if you've got a wife, you can have her tag along. That's not, what, that's not all what he's saying. What's he saying? If I bring a second person, do we have a right to be supported by you and for room and board? It costs a little more, doesn't it? Yes. Of course, yes, an apostle has the right to take his wife along with him while ministering. And he cites several other apostles here and missionaries, including Jesus' half-brothers, which are mentioned in two places in the Gospels, Matthew 13 and Mark 6. And their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. 
One believed in Jesus after his resurrection. Which one? I read it. James. And he became a leader in the Jerusalem church and is probably the author of the letter bearing his name. And the others, his other half-brothers, came to belief in Jesus at his ascension. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. I'll read that for you. So they're on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. <clears throat> All these, and he lists most of the disciples there who are watching him ascend. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer after Jesus' ascension. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay. Paul is pointing out here that married apostles, couples, and others who minister have the right to be provided for. And this point then naturally leads to his next question. Verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? What's he saying? Well, both of those guys provided for themselves most of the time. And apparently, Paul and Barnabas were not just the ones working, and they had the ability to do that, rather than relying on support from the churches. And again, the Corinthians must agree, as Paul asks this question, that even though Paul and Barnabas are apostles who support themselves, they still have the right to be supported by the churches. They just chose not to. So in verse 7, Paul drives home his point with three more examples from everyday life. What does he use? A soldier, vineyard, and a shepherd. He goes, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Obvious. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Obvious. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Obvious. You're going, good grief, he made that point over and over and over and over again. Well, he's not finished. Soldiers, vine dressers, and shepherds all receive the fruit of their labors for their personal sustenance. The same should be true for the apostles who should have their needs met by those whom they serve. And then in verses 8 through the first half of verse 12, Paul appeals to Old Testament scripture. Deuteronomy 25.4. And he applies this principle to this issue of support. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It's for oxen that God is concerned. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? 
It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Okay, so he ends with by going back to Scripture. And obviously this is in the first century. One of the things that people have made too much out of is Paul's interpretation where he says it's for our sake that God said this. A lot of the these laws in the Old Testament were for people who had problems not treating their animals. That is something that's important in these cases. Uh, the work animals especially, and this is a picture of that, is it not? So when a draft animal, such as an ox, smashed the heads of the grain and the wind blew away the chaff while the grain remained behind, if the ox was not muzzled, it was to be able to sustain itself in its heavy labor by eating some of the grain that had been crushed. What happens if you muzzle the ox? Couldn't sustain itself and it would eventually be in bad shape and even die. So in the middle here, we see that Paul's pointing out that the principle beyond just taking care of the ox is that God means for man to understand that those who labor in God's vineyard are entitled to the fruit of their labors. And in the middle of verse 12, Paul weaves this text, what he's writing, back into the big idea behind the whole passage, which we'll dive into next week. But all of the questions and explanations so far have been laid as a foundation. So it's up to all of you who have a loved one in Colorado right now to explain this passage to them so they will understand what this means when they get back next week, even though there'll probably be a short review at the beginning. Okay? That's your, that's your assignment. There is one today. It's all of this he's writing so that he can make his point that we've got to have an attitude of being able to freely serve for the sake of the gospel. Because every one of those points, Paul said, I'm willing to give all that up. In fact, I proved it to you. I'm not working to support myself. I'm, I'm not letting you support me. And the reason is I want you not to say something like, oh, well, we paid you well. You're just doing this for what we're giving you. They couldn't say any of that. That's the point. Because he was supporting himself still with his little tent-making enterprise. So this is Paul's own story, and it's very powerful. A glimpse into the way he wanted to be a steward of God's gift to him. He knew, and he said, most laborers in God. God's vineyard will need their rightful support from the churches they serve. This support frees them up to be able to serve in what we would always call a full-time ministry. But Paul was single and wants to defend his right not to be supported 
by these Corinthians. Even if it means that they'll go, well, all of the apostles should be supported by the churches. That's the criteria, and that gives them a five-star rating. If you support yourself, that gives you a two-and-a-half-star rating, and we don't really want to listen to you as much. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing here. Why? So that there could never be any accusation that he was not sold out to Christ and Christ's gospel because of what he would receive back from them for his labor. He navigates this pretty well, don't you think? He was free to be able to make no use of any of these rights, which he says a whole lot, especially in the last half of this chapter. Did you hear that? He was free not to make use of any of these rights if it got in the way of the spread and the witness of the gospel of Christ. So his, and he did that, so his opposition in Corinth had no real way to discredit him because they were busy trying to discredit him. And therefore, if what was going on was this attempt to undermine the focus of the gospel that he brought to bear to them, with them, upon them. Paul hopes that the Corinthians will begin to see how grievous their, what's their main problem? Their hard attitude as a church, across the board, not everybody, is selfish arrogance. We already know this. We don't have to do this. We think it means this. We're going to do it, etc. And it comes out in all sorts of different ways. We're just getting really started into a lot of the big problems that this church is, is facing. How they view one another, how they take sides, how they view certain gifts as being way above the others. So if you want to get the big one, then you've got it. You can discredit the people with servant gifts and behind-the-scenes gifts, etc., 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 etc. Paul hopes then to show that again that their selfish arrogance is how much this hurts people and discourages and undermines other people's faith. That's what he's going after. It's not just defending his authority as an apostle. That's a part of it, but see how he uses that to get to the underlying issue that these people have anyway. By the way, of all the commentaries I read, and I've got quite a few on this book because it's so challenging, there was only a couple that were willing to say this is not really about Paul defending his authority. It's about this issue underlying it. And I think that's really important. It's really easy for knowledgeable people to go, oh, no, we've got to establish our authority and it's your job to do this because I work as a laborer in the spiritual things. And that's not what he's majoring on. He's establishing, yes, that is a right and it's a responsibility on the other side. But that's not what his main point is. So most of all, the God they profess to proclaim and not 
is not glorified by people who think of themselves more than they do him, which these people had a problem with. And it shows up by not truly loving others who are part of the body of Christ. Almost wish we could have a discussion like, what do you think? This is an interesting way to establish these principles. It's always been interesting, but when you throw in Jesus' brothers and when they came to Christ and he uses Peter as an example of someone who takes his wife with him, evidently most of the places he went, we never hear about it, but he said it here. He has a right to. And if he goes somewhere and stays for a while, churches support him. So it's, an, it's a neat picture into the first century early church for all of us. And I hope we um, can see how important it is for us to humble ourselves before God, know that he is on his throne, and no matter what God allows or calls to come into our lives, he's got it because he's got us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for this incredible book and your servant, Paul, that you called from a life of viciously hating and persecuting, as you said to him on the road to Damascus, you. And as he came to see the grace and the gift that Jesus gave, we are so thankful for the way you used him Help him see what this life was all about so we could understand it better ourselves. Lord, a passage like this just really encourages us to step back and take a breath, be quiet, and look at the chaos around us and see how important it is for us to desire more than anything else to bring honor and glory to you which makes all of our temptations to sin and the things, directions we go that seem so important, it makes all that become dim in comparison. Lord, we thank you that you do give us life here with so many blessings and opportunities and joys. And we also thank you for the sorrows and the worries that you let come so that we can learn how faithful you are in the midst of such things. And Lord, when we're with you forever and ever, we're not going to be recalling, oh, I was this way and that didn't work out, and oh, I wish I could have done that. We're, we're looking at how you use every single thing in our lives to accomplish what you want to in our own hearts. And for that, we bow with thankfulness and gratefulness to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand for benediction. From this book. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So if you want to get out early again, just tell your husbands to go on another retreat. You're dismissed. <laughs>